0: The Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir HaKohen Kagan, was the Gadol Hadar, the great leader of his generation. In this class, we look at the Chavetz Chaim, a biography of his life, and the remarkable legacies that he left and are still with us today. As always, please like and share this podcast, ask us a question, or leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nahal Math. This morning, we're going to talk about a brief biography of a really a remarkable and most remarkable people of um, the last generation or two, Rabbi Yisrael, Mayor Kagan, more commonly known as the Chavetz Chaim. I want to read a uh, brief excerpt from an article that appeared in Tablet Magazine in February of 2015. If you are not part of the closed world of ultra-Orthodox or Haredi Jewry, or within the Orthodox Rabbinic fraternity, you are, more than, you are more than likely completely oblivious to the release last week, this is in February of 2015, to the release last week of an obscure newsreel from 1923, which for nearly a century has remained unseen, languishing on some dusty shelf in an obscure storage location in the United States. It was in the University of South Carolina. However... For the Orthodox community, the release of this footage is without exaggeration, one of the most sensational media events to have occurred in the history of modern media. Right up there with the now secular audiences perceive movie movie footage of Neil Armstrong walking on the moon or the Titanic's discovery deep in the Atlantic Ocean. Not quite five minutes long, the silent newsreel consists of a series of movie clips showing various rabbis and dignitaries exiting a public street into a gated courtyard and walking towards a stationary camera. Apparently, Fox News Corp had sent some media people in 1923 to a great, it's called the Kinesia Gedola. It was a great assembly of rabbis that met in 1923 in Vienna. And there was a Fox camera that was right there as the dignitaries were walking in. And the newsreel kind of went back to the University of, I don't know how it ended up in the University of South Carolina, but it sat in a basement somewhere. And then an amateur historian, uh, he was actually a bus driver, um, a Jewish bus driver, was doing a lot of research, and he slowly began to realize that this thing might exist, and he finally got his hands on it. And it's a remarkable footage. Most remarkable about that footage is that minute 57, at 57 seconds in through the, of the, that film, for about 12 seconds, a very short rabbi appears on the screen. Rabbi's not even five feet tall. And it's none other than Rabbi Sharmay Mayor Kagan, the Chavetz Chaim. And you see, him, there, it's far and away the clearest shot Of the Chavetz Chaim. Hardly any pictures exist of the Chavetz Chaim, our hero for tonight. Most famous picture of the Chavetz Chaim is this picture, which if you've ever heard of Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan or the Chavetz Chaim, you typically associate it with this, this picture of him. There's a funny story about this picture, and it actually involves that 1923 (coughs) Kinesia Gigola. When he wanted to go to this convention in Vienna, Chavitz Chaim had to travel and cross several borders. Chavitz Chaim, at that point, was 85 years old. He had no passport. He was born in a bygone era. His country that he was born in doesn't, didn't exist at that point, because it was after World War I. He had no birth certificate, no passport and he needed to get to Vienna. The authorities asked, well, are there any witnesses that can attest to your birth? He was 85 (laughs) years old, no. (laughs) The Chavitz Chaim was revered. He was- Nothing changes. (laughs) Bureaucracy. He was beloved. He was endeared. And the authorities who understood who this great man was, they permitted him and they they issued him a passport, even though they had no documentation that he existed. But you see, the Chavetz Chaim was a very, very humble man. A very, very pious man, as we're going to talk about. And he really shunned publicity. He was uncomfortable with it. He viewed himself as a simple man. He never wore rabbinic garb. If you've ever seen pictures of him, he never wore the traditional rabbinic hat. He viewed himself as a simple Jew. And he didn't want his picture taken because he didn't want it disseminated. He didn't want people to (laughs) turn him into an icon. That's just not how he viewed himself and not how he wanted to be viewed. So he refused to have his passport taken for this conference in 1923 in Vienna. The authorities, I guess, recognizing who this great man was. They said, no problem. So they issued him a passport without a picture and without any documentation. <laughs> <laughs> the challenge was, shortly thereafter, he did need, they, they needed to get him a picture for his passport. He really didn't want it. And the story goes, and this is the accepted, not universally accepted, but the largely accepted story, is that they said you have to get a picture taken. So the Chavetz Chaim said, sure. And they took a picture of the local butcher. (laughs) According to all accounts, some people say, this. no, this was a picture of the Chavetz Chaim, but according to all accounts, this is definitely not what he looked like. (laughs) Even if it is a picture of him, it's a poor picture of him. This is not what the Chavetz Chaim looked like. How ironic it's at the 1923 at that very... You know, that very conference, that's when a video emerges, our best picture of who the Chavetz Chaim was. The Chavetz Chaim was an absolutely remarkable person. One of his great students, his great rabbi named Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman, who was killed by the Nazis, Hashem Yikam Damo, God should avenge his blood. <coughs> rabbi Wasserman once asked the Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Kagan, he asked and he said, you know, the story goes that the great Rabbi Chaim of Valashin, living in the early 1800s, would say over about the Vilna Gon, the great Vilna Gon, his rebbe, his teacher. And he would say that the, the Vilna Gon was a throwback from a different generation. The Vilna Gon did not belong in the era that he was born. He said he was a throwback from a generation easily 600 years earlier. He was a rabbi of prominence, a person, a personality. Of a, different genera- of a different generation, a different epoch, a different era of history. And it was widely understood that the Vilna Gon was just from a different time. And asked Rabbi Wasserman, he said, why is it that the Vilna Gon, once you yeah, have the Vilna Gon, he was from a different generation. Why doesn't every generation have one personage, one personality, one leader, who's a throwback from a bygone era? And the Chav Chaim told him, he said, I want to tell you a story. If you've got... Every generation gets weaker and weaker. But every now and again, you have a generation that's just going downhill at such a rapid clip, at such a fast pace, that God needs to send a leader, someone who's righteous, someone of piety, who can try to slow down that downward fall of the generation. And God ordained that the, that the Vilnagon, during his time, it was a tumultuous era, at the beginning of the modern world, That generation needed a throwback. That could be said of the Chafetz Chaim. There are very few people in Jewish history that stand out so prominently from their generation as just not belonging to that era. They were a throwback from a generation centuries earlier. And I was talking to Rabbi Katenik yesterday. I find it so fascinating. If you study history, Jewish history, non-Jewish history... It's a very, historiography is the study of history, which is a fascinating thing, historiography. A lot of personalities, historical personages, their stock rise or fall from the era where they lived in. People often, during their lifetime, were very, very prominent, influential, significant people. But as generations move on, their stock often plummets. And we take down their statues. Some people, conversely, were nobodies. They were insignificant. They were hardly recognized during their time. But posterity looks back at them and says they were heroes. Very few people are rock stars while they're alive, are recognized for their greatness while they're alive, and then historically are also revered and put on a pedestal. Not too many historical figures are like that. The Chavetz Chaim is one of those people. He was the Gadol Hadar. He was the leader of his generation, and he lived a long time. Universally accepted as the giant of his time. For decades, the Chavetz Chaim was it. And historically, a hundred years later, the Chavetz Chaim today is one of the great personalities, cherished and beloved by the Jewish people. We're going to go through a brief biography of the life of the Chavetz Chaim, and then time permitting, we're going to take a look at some of the legacies that he's left over for us. He was born on the 11th of Shvat in 1838, or 1839, or 1928, or 1929, depending on who you ask. We don't exactly know when he was born. (laughs) Most will tell you it was 1839. Um, the New York Times, if we have time, we'll read the, the New York Times, put an obituary for the Chavetz Chaim, Says something about who he was. Um, they claimed he was 105 when he died. He dies in 1933. According to most accounts, he was probably 95, So, which puts his birth at 1838, 1839. His father, his mother's name was Dabrushna, his father's name was Arye Zev. Rabbi Khatanik is Ariyazev is named for him? He's named after the names. biological nephew, father. Nephew. nephew. Okay. Named Who's named after? Okay, so Rabbi Khatanik's son is <coughs> one step away, removed named for the time's father. Um his father, he met, his father married a woman named Debroshna. Now who is Debroshna? the brushnah? was married once. His first wife died. He leaving, I believe, four children. And he married his wife's, his late wife's sister, Debrashna. They only had one child. His name was Rabbi Yisrael Meir. Um, no, he had three children. He had three, I'm sorry. And his first wife, he had three children. So the Chavetz Chaim had three, had three siblings, Rezal, Moshe, and Aaron. When he was just 10 years old, the Chavetz Chaim's father died in 1848 in in Vilna. We've talked about the great Rabbi Yisrael Solanter, who will come up again. If you recall, there was a cholera epidemic in Vilna in 1848, and the Chavit Chaim's father dies in that epidemic. Chavit Chaim is orphaned. His mother moves to Vilna, where he lives for a couple of years, and he studies in the local yeshivas in Vilna. His mother will remarry a man named Shimon Pupka. For many years, the Chavit Chaim actually went by the name Yisrael Meir Pupka. Just a common Jewish last name. He would relate, later go back. He signed his name often, Yisrael Meir HaKohen Pupka, but he would change his name back to Kagan. Now, last names don't mean all that much in Jewish, in Judaism, particularly in that area. None of the Chavot children, children, to my knowledge, went by the name Kagan. He's typically known as Kagan. I don't know what the, name, what the word Kagan means. I assume it's some kind of slur of sorts for the word Kohen. He was a Kohen. That's who he went by, Yisrael Meir HaKohen. They moved, his mother, when, when, when little Yisrael Meir was somewhere between the ages of 10 and 17, somewhere as a young child, they moved to the small town of Radin. Radin is in present-day Belarus. It's a tiny town. Tiny town would be the biggest overstatement. It's <laughs> smaller than a tiny town. It's nothing. It's about a two-hour drive from Minsk. <laughs> and that's where the Chavetz Chaim moved. And he would live the rest of his life in this tiny town backwater town called um, called i 'll just maybe go to the end in um, when the Chavit Chaim dies she 's buried in Roden and is in one thousand nine hundred and thirty three and right in the outbreak of the beginning of the rise of Hitlerism. After World War, you know, basically all the Jews in Rodin, it was a small Jewish town, all the Jews and none of the Jews in Rodin survived. They were all killed. However, the town of Rodin surprisingly survived the war. Most cities or even hamlets and towns in that region were wiped out or destroyed one way or another by the war. Rodin um, is, was preserved, spared. Very little, virtually no military action happened there. And the inhabitants kind of lived peacefully through the most tumultuous epoch in the history of mankind. And many pe- Jews wanted to move the, the remains of the Chabad Chaim to Israel. And the several attempts were made to move the, the remains of the Chabad Chaim, but the non-Jews would not let it. Because they attributed the town's survival to this great rabbi. And indeed, for about 50 years, Jews really weren't able to visit Radin because it came under the auspices of uh, the USSR. And with the rise of Stalinism and, and the anti-Semitism there, Jews, hardly any Jews had visited Radin until the fall of the Soviet Union, Belarus, in, in, 19, in the 1990s. And basically, when the first Jews came to Radin in 91, 92, they were shocked to see no, no, no one had been there in 50 years. The Chabad Chaim's house—this is my understanding—his house, the yeshiva, were perfectly intact, as if no one touched it, <coughs> because even the gentile public, you know, the gentiles around there recognized how great of a man he was. When he was 17 years old, his father-in-law, his stepfather—pardon me, his stepfather—proposed to the Chabad Chaim that he marry his stepsister. I believe her name was Frida. Now, the Chavetz Chaim, Chaim's mother and brother were very against that idea, presumably because like, it's, it's a little funny, I, I guess. Again, they're not related. They're not, not biologically related on any, any level. But the Chavetz Chaim had already said yes, and he felt bad that this girl would, uh, you know, be shamed in any level. And it created a little bit of friction, but uh, he ends up marrying his uh, his stepsister, Freda. So his stepfather becomes his father-in-law at the same time. I believe they had four children. And this, it sounds unusual for two reasons. Like that kind of, close familiar familial type of shidduch as well as getting married at 17 but the truth of the matter is that part of the world which is probably i'm going to guess most people in this room your ancestors were probably from somewhere close to that area that was very common as a matter of fact getting married at 17 was late was late, and the Chavetz Chaim, who by this time was considered a prodigy, who was considered a brilliant superstar, um, people thought he would get married much younger because his prospects for marriage, because he was such a wonder kid. Um, you know, it was surprising that he got he got married that late, and part of the reasons that I think his brother was disappointed on, on his choice of a, of, a, of a wife was someone of his prominence should have been able to marry a super wealth, from someone from a super wealthy family and someone super prominent, um, but that wasn't to be. His wife died, I believe, in like 1899, 1901, something like that, and he rem they had. I think four children together. They, he remarried in 1903. I don't know much about his second wife. I believe her name was Freda II. Rabbi Katanik? I think so. They had, I believe, two children together. Uh, two children together. One of his sons-in-law from that second marriage was a great rabbi named Rabbi Mendel Zax who moved to the United States. Chavitz second wife, I believe, died and is buried, I think, in the United States. His son-in-law, Rabbi Mendel Zax, would go on to serve in Yeshiva University in the, at Reitz, where he served and died in the 70s. He, had, he lived a long time. Between the, the Chavetz Chaim's birth and his son-in-law's death, it's like almost two centuries. It's, it's, I mean, it's like a century and a half. I think he died in the late 70s, early 80s, which is remarkable. His brilliance was recognized by all, but more more significantly, his piety was recognized at a very young age. At the age of, in in his early 20s, he was, the people in this tiny hamlet of Rodin proposed that he become the rabbi of the town. The rabbi of the town had either died or left. And they proposed that he become the rabbi of the town. He did not want to be the rabbi. That was not what he was interested in. But they pressured him and he said, fine, I'll accept the rabbi on one condition. That if I issue a ruling, dispute resolution, people have to listen. He didn't want, he avoided machlokas. He was such a sensitive, caring person. And as we're going to see in a moment, his greatest life's mission was preserving harmony and love between people. And when people were in disputes and people were fighting, it caused him tremendous pain and friction. So he said, I'll be the rabbi. One of the roles of the rabbi is dispute resolution, particularly when it comes to financial things. And he said, look, it's something he didn't like doing. I'll do it, but people have to just agree and move on. And Bahayom, the day he came, what happened? He dealt with his first you know, conflict. And he issued his resolution. And what happened? The guy who lost didn't listen. So he, he said, I'm out. And he resigned the rabbinate after, I think, a few weeks, never to become a rabbi again. Um, he opened up in his early life, and for a good chunk of his, the first half of, of his life, for many years, he lived, not as a rabbi, but he owned a small shop, a grocery store of sorts, because he didn't, want, he didn't want the rabbinate, he didn't want any prestige. He opened up a small shop. The stories from him as a merchant are legendary. Um, his reputation of being a pious person and a great man grew. So people wanted to go and shop at the store of the Chavetz Chaim, right? He felt bad. What about the other groceries in town? Oh. He shut his store every day at noon. I have enough money, I'm fine. He lived as a pauper his entire life. Let, the other, let them go to the other stores. When, he, he doesn't know Jeff Bezos. Right? <laughs> exactly. He would lock his door. No, no, and that, that wasn't enough. And people still, so, so they would come in the morning. So he locked the front door so that no visitors could come. His only customers were the regulars. They knew to come in through the back. There are stories of how one time one of the non-Jewish residents of Radin bought bought some fish from his store and left by accident a herring in the store, but he couldn't remember, and he found out. He couldn't remember who was it, non-Jew. He couldn't remember who who bought that herring and then left it there the next day, and he could have felt terrible. How could I possibly? I have someone else's property. The next day, he gave out free herring to everyone <laughs> to make sure I repay. One day, similar type of story, you know, they had scales. Remember back in the good old days, you'd go into the grocery store and you'd put stuff on scales. And that's how he measured. He, was sold, he sold salt. And he noticed a, a non-Jewish woman had, got, had come in. from A woman from a different town, in the town next door, had bought some salt and... He noticed after she left, some of the salt had stayed on the scales. How could it be that I'm going to take someone's salt? He tra- and he didn't remember who it was. The next day, he got a, hitched a wagon, which was a big deal, went to the st- town next door, and gave salt to everyone. So as to God forbid, take from someone else's, someone else's uh, property. He eventually would start a yeshiva in Radin, where he was, the, I, I'm going to use the word nominal rosh Hashiva. He was the nominal head of the yeshiva. He was the head of the yeshiva, and it was his life's mission. But he wasn't a traditional rosh yeshiva. He wasn't the traditional head of the yeshiva because, as we're going to see in a moment, he uh, he spent his life um, taking care of a lot of other things, particularly publishing a lot of books. And taking care of a lot of other needs. So, although he was involved in the yeshiva, he would eventually hire others to really run the yeshiva. Um, he spent, that's really how he earned his parnasa, his livelihood, certainly for the first, the majority of his life, was through the selling and publication of, of his books, um, which we're going to talk about in a moment. One of the most influential people in his life. He studied, uh, as I mentioned, in Vilna. He had several rabbis, but one of the most influential people in his life was none other than one of the people we've talked about recently in this group. Was the great Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the great Rabbi Yisrael Lipkin of Salant, that great proponent of Mussar, Jewish ethics and philosophy. Um, he was one of the most um, impactful people uh, in the Chavetz Chaim's life. As I mentioned, he dies in 1933. What were his major legacies? What did he do? What was the Chafetz Chaim's accomplishments? Why do we call him the Chafetz Chaim? His name was Rabbi Yisrael Mayer Kagan. And the reason why we call him the Chavitz Chaim is because of this. The first book that he published in, 19, in excuse me, 1873, still a young man, not widely known. Again, he's a shopkeeper. At a small, at this point, he had started working on this book before his yeshiva was started, but right as the yeshiva started, he was a small, virtually anonymous person. When this book was published in 1873, it was published anonymously. He ate excuse me, 1873. Thank you. In 1873, it did not have his name on it. Why? He, as we mentioned, didn't want publicity. He didn't he was a very humble, pious person. He didn't want people to know who he was. He sold this book because he felt that its mission And its value was super important. You know, we stand right now, today, the period of the three weeks. For those who were at the explanatory service yesterday, we talked about three weeks, the period in Jewish history between the 17th Jewish month of Tammuz and the 9th of Av. Three weeks where we talk, where we commemorate, and we mourn the great tragedies that have befallen our people. Most notably the destruction of the two temples and our our sages tell us the second temple, the exile that we're in today is because of sinas chinam, hatred. The fact that we can't get along with one another as Jews. Something that we've, as a nation, we need to work on. The last 2,000 years, Jews can't get along with one another as well as we should. And the Chavetz Chaim says when our sages tell us sinas chinam, that it was friction, interpersonal conflict, the Chavetz Chaim argues vehemently, that the core of it, specifically, was Lashon Hara, gossip. Talking negatively about one another. And the Chavetz Chaim went on, his, life, his life's mission is to, was to raise awareness. And we talk about being a religious Jew. What does it being a religious Jew look like? And we all in our minds, whatever picture we conjure up in our mind, what a religious, orthodox, pious Jew looks like: Shabbat observant, keeps kosher, studies twenty-seven hours a day, Rabbi Katanik. Whatever the most pious Jew looks like <laughs> in your mind, whatever you conjure up as a, as piety, the Chavetz pointed out passage you would quote: passage in the Talmud which teaches. It says, Most people steal. Not as pickpockets, but we're maybe not so sensitive with other people's money. Maybe we didn't return the change where we should have. Maybe we took something that we shouldn't have. Not not in a a pickpocketing sense, but are we really super particular about other people's possessions? If you bumped into someone while you were parking, did you really leave a note? Rubam Begezel, most people steal. We all chuckle when we hear stories about the Chavetz Chaim and that herring. Would we have done that? Would we have returned the salt? Rubam Begezel. Most people don't violate laws of sexual immorality, but Mi some do. Says the Talmud, Kulam Be'Lashon Hara. Everyone violates the transgression of Lashon Hara, of speaking negatively. And Lashon Hara as a prohibition, back then and to a large degree now, most people don't even view it as a prohibition, as a sin in the Torah, one of the 613 commandments, that you're not allowed to speak negatively about someone. We It's a nice pious thing. It's a nice thing, maybe saintly, really good-hearted, kind, kind of people are particular about that. Chavetz Chaim, in one of his footnotes, in this great work, he says, no one, no one ever, you know, a religious, if I told you a religious, pious Jew walked into a McDonald's and he ordered a bacon lettuce and what's it, BLT, bacon lettuce, man, and he said, extra bacon, put on as much, you know, bacon as you can, that's preposterous. Yet he says, when it comes to Lashon hara, speaking negatively about others, no one thinks twice. He says, it's the same Torah that prohibits, prohibits both. You're not allowed to speak negatively about one another. Even if it's true, a point the Chavetz Chayim makes over and over and over again. Social media is basically prohibited. There's no way for me to say that in, in any other way. Social media is basically against Jewish law. Because, I mean, it's very hard. you got to be very, very careful navigating social media. What do we do? We post, if you had a bad experience with someone, you say something about them. That's prohibited. Prohibited to read it. I'm not going to post it. Why are we reading that stuff? It's prohibited to read it. And the Chavetz Chaim went on a crusade. It was his life's mission to raise awareness. This is a real mitzvah in the Torah. And he wrote a book called Sefer Chafetz Chaim. The, verse, the, the word Chafetz Chaim means he who desire, desires life. It's based on a verse in the Psalms. Who is the man who desires to live a long life? He loves days and wants to only see good. I do. What's the answer? The next verse. Guard your tongue from speaking evil, in your lips, from speaking deceitfully. Who desires life? You want to live a long life? You want to live a successful life, a good life? You've got to be particular about the laws of Lashon Hara, about the laws of gossip. I'm going to just do a shameless plug right here. The live, I, this is what I got to do. The, the laws of Shemir Salashon, the laws of speaking appropriate speech. Let me back up one second. When the, when the Rabbi Charles Salanter saw this book published, he rejoiced. He rejoiced for two reasons. The Sefer HaVet is a code of law about pro, appropriate and inappropriate speech. It's actually a law, it's a halacha sefer. Rabbi, Rabbi, Davidowitz, God bless him, he loves putting on our library this book, Sefer Chafetz Chaim, which most people view it's a work of Musser, of ethics, of appropriate speech. He always, and I, it's like, it drives me nuts, he loves keeping it on the law section, in, in the halacha section. It's a Sefer of halacha. It's not a law of, of, It's not a book about musr about ethics. It's a book of law, appropriate speech. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter loved that. Because Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, one of his life's missions was to teach the world, and when it comes to our Character development, our personality, these aren't just niceties. There are laws, there are Jewish laws that govern our interpersonal relationships. That govern how we conduct ourselves. And when he saw that someone, the stature of this person, put out a book, as a, it's, a, it's a code of law, on proper speech, it was like the greatest thing for him. Now people will know the laws, what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, but there's a second reason why Rabbi Salanter rejoiced. It's not so much studying the laws. It's important to study the laws. And it happens to me there's a lot of um, misinformation slash ignorance when it comes to what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. What are you allowed to say about one another and what are we not allowed to say about one another? It's a tremendous amount of misinformation. So you've got to know the laws, but it's more about knowing the laws it's putting them into practice living a life of sensitivity of Lush and Hara. How do you do that? Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, one of his great ideas, it was a concept that we talked about called Chinuch hamusar. He would argue, you study something, it becomes a part of you. Which is why we've talked about in my yeshiva, we would study this book. A disproportionate amount of time of the, of the day's curriculum it was a tremendously disproportionate amount of time was reserved for this book. Because it wasn't about studying the book for its knowledge, it was about studying the book so it becomes a part of you which is why Rabbi Yisrael Solanter loved it. And here's the shameless plug. I put out every day a little video going through this book, Sefer HaVetz Chaim. If you want to join, there's the link to the WhatsApp group or just send me a text and I'll, I'll sign you up. So after the class, there are a bunch of flyers. If you want to sign up, um, the laws of, of appropriate speech. I can attest as a member that it's a wonderful four minutes. I, that, by the way, I didn't pay him to say that. <laughs> <laughs> He publishes the book in 1873 he writes it anonymously. And people want to know who is this person and it would take a little bit of time for it eventually came out that Rabbi Kagan this anonymous person he was the Chafetz Chaim it's what we do in Judaism we call people by the name of the book that they wrote. So that's why he's called the Chafetz Chaim. History calls him the Chafetz Chaim. A lot of it had to do with the fact that when it first came out, it it was anonymous. He wrote a second book that was published, I think, one or two years later. It's, It's usually, in almost every edition of the book, it's... Um, it's in the back. It's called Sefer Shmiras Halashon, the book of appropriate speech. Which, if the Sefer Chavatim, the book Chavatim is a law book, Shmiras Salashon is clearly a book of ethics. It's it's a compendium of passages from our sages, Chazal, the Talmud, the Medrash, talking about and inspiring us on why we should be sensitive to um, to appropriate speech. But the reality was, is after the Chavetz Chaim pu- published this work, it took a long time for people to recognize and put a name to a face. People didn't know who the author of the Chavetz Chaim was. Now, the Chavetz Chaim himself, Rabbi Kagan, would go around from town to town. This was his Parnassa, this was his livelihood, selling the book. But he would never say he was the author of the book. Because <laughs> he didn't want people to think, because it was an amazing book. You pick it up, you realize, whoever wrote this book is... Just an immensely pious person and a scholar, and he did again. He, he shied away from recognition his whole life. So he would always introduce. He would go to the next shtetl over, and he would say, "I'm an agent of the author." Now, keen rabbis of the town would speak to him. They realized there's something unique about them, and he got sniffed out all the time. <laughs> but not all. Not some people just. People did, not there are legendary stories of the Chavetz Chaim on trains or on wagons next to people and thinking he's a common folk. So two stories, popular stories, I, I think they're true. Two stories come to mind, um, and they all have similar types of endings. One story, he's sitting next to some guy on a train, and the guy, guy asks, oh, what's your, what do you do? Oh, I'm a farmer, this, the Chavetz Chaim's uh, seatmate. Right? tells him. Oh, And they start talking about horses and cattle for three hours. Can you imagine if you're sitting next to the most pious rabbi of your generation and all you're doing is you're talking about horses? They get to the destination and someone comes to greet the Chavetz Chaim and this fellow realizes <laughs> that he just wasted four hours of the Chavetz Chaim's life talking about sheep. And he felt horrible. He, he said, I apologize. And the Chavetz says, no, don't apologize. I want to thank you. Do you know how hard it is when you sit in a group of people and you're sitting next to someone for four hours? What's the likelihood that you're not going to talk Lashon Hara? That you're not going to gossip? It's impossible. We spent the time talking about horses. Baruch Hashem, thank God. we didn't say a word of Lashon Hara, I want to thank you. <laughs> now, it's a funny story. I deeply believe the Chavetz Haim meant it. It wasn't a throwaway line. He really meant it. The other story, there are different variations, similar type of story. He's on a train, a wagon. Someone sitting next to him, doesn't know who he is. And a uh, fellow asks him, asks, where are you from? He says, oh, I'm from a tiny town. He says, oh, where? He says, oh, this town called Rotted. And he said, oh, isn't that, he had heard, by this time, the, the Chavetz Chaim, you know, it, it was out. And he said, that's where the Chavetz Chaim lives. Lo- There's a great rabbi that lives in that town. Rabbi, the, the Chavetz Chaim. And the Chavetz Chaim says, yeah, he's not, he's, he's fine. He's not that great of a rabbi. And the fellow, the fellow says, what, what are you talking about? He's the Chavetz Chaim. And they go back and forth every time. The Chavetz Chaim says, no, he's not, he's, he's fine. He's fine. He's not that great. And the fellow is getting worked up into a lather of anger. How dare you disrespect the Chavetz Chaim? The story goes, I don't know, it's probably true. I think it's true. He slaps him across the face. How dare you insult the Chavetz Chaim? <laughs> when he left, right? And then when he gets to the town, he finds out, what did he just do? He slapped the Chavetz Chaim across the face. The fellow felt horrible. And the, the story goes, I don't exactly know if it's true. It's not true how it works. The Chavetz Chaim says, you see from here, you can't speak negatively about yourself. He, 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 felt horrible. He made this guy shamed. But again, it's such a powerful story, like, that perspective. Lechavitz like, he realized that, like, that was misplaced piety. It hurt the other guy. That was Lechavitz Chaim's life. i got a quick question. Quick question, sure. Was it legitimate for the Chofitz Chaim to deceive the man and not admit he was him? That's a tricky question. Oftentimes, it's, 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 it's a tricky question. I mean, again, Chofitz Chaim, I think he does rule, I have to recall, that you're not supposed to lie about yourself. You're not allowed to speak negatively about yourself. Do you have to... It's case by case. I, hard, hard, hard question to answer. That was... If we would end our story there the Chavetz Chaim would be on the pantheon of one of the greatest, most influential people of the last 200 years. This book changed the world. If you've ever heard about a campaign for Shmiras Ashalasham, against gossip, it is all because of the Chavetz Chaim. And it's remarkable. We end our story there. What one person can accomplish, the contribution to Jewish life, it's just remarkable. But the Chavetz Chaim didn't end there. <laughs> if you ever study Jewish law, it comes from the Talmud. The Talmud is not a code of law. The Talmud is a dialogue. The codes, the great codes of Jewish law, weren't compiled till the times of the Rishonim, most notably the Rambam, perhaps the Rif, culminating in the great Shulchan Arch, code of Jewish law, the early 1500s. I argue, and I will defend this, the most important halachic work ever written from the time of the Shulchan Aruch till, till today is this. these books right here. Rabbi Katenik, the most important works of halacha is right here, the Mishnah Brurah. Rabbi Katenik nods in agreement. I, I think what is today in 2023 if you, again, I'm not saying in 1823, in, in 2023, the most important works of Jewish law, literally since the time of the Shulchan Arach till today, I hold in my hands the six volumes of the Mishnah Bruch. What are the Mishnah Bruch? If you study the Shulchan Arach, the code the great codes of, of, of Jewish law, by the way, maybe, maybe just to preface it, just to why I believe this to be true. First of all, I've studied it, but I I was struck, if you recall, it was about a year, uh, it was Purim time, not last year, but the year before. Great sage of our generation, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, dies in Israel. And he was a brilliant man, and one of the amazing things about Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky is every year he would make a siyam. He would study not all of Torah, but what he felt was essential, core, basic books fundamental books in Judaism. He would study all of it every year, a type of thing that if most people can't accomplish a quarter of that in their lifetime. So he studied the entire Babylonian, the entire Babylonian Talmud, the entire Yishami, Talmud Yerushalmi, all of the Medrash, all of the Zohar, the entire Shulchan Aruch, I believe Torbe Yosef, I think, I don't know, and I remember, and we had a couple uh, months ago, if you recall, we had Rabbi Pessin, a great rabbi from Israel. He, he graced us with his presence. And he, he talked about, rabbi, he was a student of Rabbi Kanayevsky. And he mentioned the things that, the, that Rabbi Kanayevsky would study every year. And I remember he mentioned in passing, again, Talmud, Medrash, Code of Jewish Law, Brura. Rabbi Chaim Kanayevsky, you want to know what's essential 101, Fundamental books in Jewish in Judaism, it's the Mishnah Brura, the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law is is the base. It's the starting point for Jewish law for Halacha. However, there are th- at least three not. Deficiencies, God forbid, is not the word to use. Three challenges that a person will have if all you do is you study the Shulchan Aruch, you will quickly find it's very, very hard to do much just studying the text of Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the Machaber, the Shulchan Aruch, along with the Rama, Rabbi Moshe Isserles. So if all you read are the code, it's like reading the NRS. Has anyone ever looked at the Nevada Revised Statutes? Have you ever tried reading it? Yes. It's interesting. It's not very helpful, nor does it make for very pleasant reading. <laughs> There are three major, I, I identified, three major challenges just reading the Shulchan Aruch. Number one, it, although its organization, its structure organizationally is definitive. That is the organized structure of Jewish law. That's why I call the Shulchan Aruch, I translated it as the code of Jewish law, not because everything in there is final, but that is the code system that Judaism uses. However its rulings, the psak, the rulings of the Shulchan Aruch, counterintuitively, are not always definitive because the Shulchan Aruch, again published in the early 1500s, immediately thereafter, all the great scholars for the next several centuries debated it. And many would argue, how often does the Ramah argue with the Shulchan Aruch, who argues with the Mughan Avram, who argues with the Taz? There are many great authorities layered after the Shulchan Aruch Who challenged the rulings of the Shulchan Aruch? What is someone like Meth supposed to do in 2023? Do we follow what the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law says? Maybe this is one of those times where we follow the rulings of the countless others, the Magad Abram, the Taz, the Shach, the smah all the super commentaries written after. Number two, where do they they argue this? in In publications that they wrote directly on the Shulchan Aruch. And they are published, by the way, Any standard edition, the actual Shulchan Aruch, if you were to just take the text of the Code of Jewish Law, you can easily fit into a volume this big. If you look in the bookshelf behind you, if you want to peek through the window, if you see on the second to bottom shelf, on the right, all of those black volumes is one edition of the Shulchan Aruch. Now, why is it like 20 something, whatever it is, probably 12 12 volumes, if it could be condensed into one small book, the answer is all the commentaries that were written on it are all published together nowadays. Number two, despite the fact that the Shulchan Aruch is a wonderful book, there are many situations, contemporary situations or other situations, that the Shulchan Aruch just doesn't discuss. There are a lot of practical cases that are left out and not discussed by the Shulchan Aruch. And number three, the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, is written as a code of law. It doesn't give you background. It's not designed to give you background. That's not its point. But if a person just wants to study basic Jewish law and you don't really have the context the nuance it could be a very complicated and I would use the word dry experience all you do is read the Shulchan Aruch, you're going to be missing Rabbi Sarmair Kagan the Chavitz Chaim accomplished set out to resolve these three things, and probably others, but this is just how I see it. So what the Mishnah Brurah is, it goes through one of the four sections of the, of the Shulchan Aruch. It doesn't deal with the entire code of Jewish law. It just deals with the section of Or which are the laws of daily living, which the Chavetz Chaim felt, these are the laws that every Jew needs to know. The other three sections are important, but he said, leave that to the rabbis. The rabbis will need to study that, and if you have any questions in those areas, kashros, financial law, family law, go ask Rabbi Ketanik. But everyone else, you need to know the laws of daily living. Brachas, prayer, Shabbos, holidays, tefillin, things like that. These are things that are relevant to everyone. And the Mishnah Buruh, basically what he did was he did all three of these things. He went through all of the commentaries from the times of the Shulchan till his day. And he issued his rulings. I feel this is who we follow. Number two, he discusses mother, many other situations, contemporary situations, things that the, the Shulchan code of Jewish law did not discuss. And number three, he gives us a little bit of a background to the, the the discussion at hand. And he published these six work, these six volumes. It took him thirty years to work to write this. Thirty years. There are people today. Well, let me back up. On my tombstone, I want it to be written that I love the Bura. I am a Mishnaburah Jew. I love the Mishnaburah. I think it is the most amazing of the... It, it, it's, it's amazing. Not everyone appreciates the Mishnaburah. I, I, I can't even say that I appreciate it. There's a love affair between me and the, and the, and the Mishnaburah. It's an amazing, amazing work. If you have a working knowledge of the Mishnaburah, You aren't just a competent Jew. You are a Gadol Israel. You are a great leader in the Jewish people. If you can just... If you can master this, you're one of the Gadol HaDar. You're one of the greatest people of the generation. But if you just have a basic, functional working knowledge of this book, these books, you are a Torah... Not competent. You are a Torah giant. A Torah giant. There are people nowadays in certain circles that no one will say it's not an important work, but they minimize and say, okay, we don't always follow the Mishnah Bruhah. People have an attitude of dismissing the, shokhan, of the, di- dismissing the Mishnah Bura. And it bothers me. <laughs> Anyone can do the research and people have, many people have tried mimicking what the, what the Mishnah Bruhah did. Again, he only did it on one of the volumes and people have tried doing it on other volumes. People tried, uh, try, tried doing it on, on the same types of topics. And of course, anyone can do it. You can. It's not. I mean, it's hard, but the structure, the concept, you can mimic it. The Chavetz Chaim was revered as one of the most brilliant people of his generation, as we talked about. He was a throwback from years past. It took him thirty years to come up with this. Let's not dismiss the Mishibura. It is the gold standard of halacha. And modern contemporary halacha in 2023 must go through the Mishnah Bura. Must go through the Mishnah Burah. It does. It has to Number two. When we talk about halacha, Jewish living, a mistake that some people make, and it's a terrible mistake, is there are people, very smart religious people, who they will study a halachic topic very well. And they know the topic backwards and forwards. And they'll argue, Oh, well, look, I've studied this. I've gone through every source. And they're smart, brilliant people. Smarter than me. And they will say, because of that, I'm issuing the following ruling. This is how I see the halacha. Judaism says that's great. But when we talk about psak, when we talk about great halachists, your knowledge and background and brilliance are important. You have to have it. There's no question. If you're a dope you can't really weigh in on halachic Jewish law legal issues. You have to have brilliance. But many people forget one, one of the most necessary, if not the, probably I would argue, the most necessary ingredient when it comes to Jewish law. And that is what's called Yiras shamayim. Do you fear God? Halacha can easily forget that God is in the equation. And we reduce Jewish law to some other area of jurisprudence. There are brilliant legal scholars and legal minds around today. And people lose sight of the fact that when someone tells me the halacha is X, Y, or Z, that's great. I don't just want to know your credentials in terms of your brilliance and halachic expertise. I kind of want to know your credentials of, do you fear God? Are you a pious person? Because it's very easy to say, I think that it's okay to do X, Y, or Z, or I think it's forbidden to do X, Y, or Z, because I've done the, the topic. Yeah, but Judaism is not just a, a cold, dry, legal discussion. It's about our connection and, and relationship to God. The Chavetz Chaim was of the most pious people. The reason why I believe the Mishnah Bura is the gold standard, it's not just the Chavetz Chaim's brilliance, although, again, I challenge anyone to find who, who, who exactly was the, the more brilliant scholar. And again, there were great people during his generation. He was at the top. But the reason why the Mishnah is so celebrated and should be so celebrated is not just the Chavetz Chaim's erudition; it was his piety as well. Where does your class start on the Mishnah Burra? Yeah. Okay, so I wasn't going to mention this, but I will mention it. If you want to learn more Mishnah I do give a daily podcast, a daily also a WhatsApp group on Mishnah so if you want to join, I don't have flyers posted, but they're out over there. Send me a text, and you can join. I will say it's a little bit more advanced. It's not necessarily for the beginner, but you can try. You can try it. It's, I, it's a little bit more on the advanced line, but stick with it. I do Daily Mishabura. I try to sign you Mishibura every single day of my life. I hope Wonderful. I do. It's, it's, it's an amazing book. So everyone is welcome to join. I, I send out a WhatsApp. Same with the Lodzhen article. I give out a, a, a brief... You know WhatsApp. you Just join the WhatsApp group, and it's it's amazing. And if you have any questions, I always love and appreciate when people send in uh, questions, either on on, on the Chavetz Chaim or on Mishneh Please do. He found the hours late, so we're just going to rush through the last couple of things, and we'll get you all out of here. Some of his other legacies; those are his two major, le- his two biggest legacies, I believe, are Shmiras is his his Sefer Chavetz Chaim, the book on Lashon Hara, Shemir Salashan and the Mishneh He did write. A bunch of other books. He was prolific in his writing. <coughs> this is a copy, it's called the Kol Kisfei Hachavetz Chaim, all of his letters. He wrote some amazing other works. Um, we don't have time to go through them. He wrote, well, maybe I'll just highlight three of them very quickly. One of them is Ahavas Chesed, which is a book on Chesed, kindness, being charitable and kind to one another. It's a beautiful, an amazing book. He wrote two other books, which I think are just uh, really noteworthy. He wrote a book in 1893, 94, called Nidche Yisrael, The Dispersed of Israel. What it is, it's a very basic work of halacha as well as encouragement for Jews not to give up their Judaism in terms of their religious practices. He wrote this book specifically for Jews living in the United States of America. It was written specifically for the Jews of America, beginning in 1881, maybe a decade earlier, had started moving to this country. And the rumors were true. Jews would move to the United States and abandon their Judaism. And he wrote this book specifically for, for the Jews of, um, of the United States. He wrote another amazing book called *Machane Yisrael, The Camp of Israel. He wrote this book, one of the most brutal, most difficult elements of 19th century Russian life or, you know, Polish, Russian life were the horrific Cantonist decrees. Children were, Jews were conscripted into the army at an alarming rate. Jews were conscripted, they were usually kidnapped. Kidnapped into, the. it was an unimaginably horrific and not as well known today. These were called the Cantonistic decrees. It was horrific. You'd be kidnapped uh, some of often they were kidnapped because cities had to, had to give quotas of, Jew, of people to go serve in the Russian army. And when you got drafted into the Russian army, it was a short service of 25 years. <coughs> many, of, many of whom never came back alive. And if you did come back, your Judaism was broken. And he wrote a book called Machin Israel*, where he urged the Jews who were or drafted into the, into the Czarist army how to, to try to live a, a Jewish lifestyle. There's a, one of the most heartwarming, you want to know who the Chavetz Chaim was. Some of these people, they were, they were kidnapped as children, seven-year-olds. He's at an inn. Inns back then doubled as bars. You had an inn. If you're traveling, you stayed over, but they were often bars and restaurants. He stays at an inn in a local Jewish town. He's on, on the road. And he sees, in walks in, some gruff, you know, burly Russian soldier in his uniform. And he sits down, you know, eats without making a, 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 a bracha or without signing the prayer. You can very tell this is not uh, you know, a refined person. He's, you know, he looks like what you know, a Russian soldier looks like. And the Chavot was there. And the innkeeper was there. And the innkeeper said, you should know he, this, this poor fellow, he was now I don't know how old he was, he was an, certainly an adult. He had been conscripted, he had been kidnapped when he was seven years old. And here he is in the Russian army and like, look what the Russian army did to him. He's this rough and tumble fellow. But he's Jewish. And the Chavetz Chaim like, wanted to talk to him. And the innkeeper's like, you don't want to talk to this guy. He's going to create a scene. He's going to insult you. It's, Do me a favor, says the innkeeper. Stay away from this guy. He's trouble. The Chavetz Chaim insisted. Sits down next to the guy. It's just You talk about the Chavetz Chaim. It, just, it, it brings, a, brings a tear. He goes over to the fellow. He says, is it true that you were, you were kidnapped when you were seven years old? Torn away from your parents? He said, yeah. He says, and it's true, and here you are, so many years later, can't imagine how horrific, they must have forced you to eat non-kosher and you didn't have the opportunity to start eat Torah to learn anything about your Judaism. And here you are. You never converted to Christianity. You still have your Jewish identity. Chavetz Chaim says, I want you to know I'm envious of your share in the world to come. I wish I can have that place in the afterlife where your seat's going to be. Fellow, tears in his eyes. It becomes a Baal Tshuva. He repents. He followed Chavetz Chaim. <laughs> he up becoming a Torah Jew. It's just absolutely amazing. He founded a yeshiva where I mentioned he was the Rosh Yeshiva, but he hired tremendous staff of people around him who led the Yeshiva. Um, his son-in-law, Rabbi Levinson, Rabbi Hirsch Levinson would be the great leader of, of the Yeshiva for, for up until his untimely death. Rabbi Naftali Trap, Rabbi, rabbi, Hanan, Wasser, rabbi Hanan Wasserman. And of course, I got to throw in, a rabbi named Rabbi David Leibowitz. Rabbi David Leibowitz was the Chavot Chaim's great nephew. I think, I don't remember exactly who, which of the Chavot Chaim's siblings. I think it's from Aaron? Through Aaron, he was Aaron's grandson, there was a fellow named Rabbi David Leibowitz. Rabbi David Leibowitz in 1924? One? Decides he was going to move to the United States to try to help the Jews in the, in the United States of America. 1924? Something like that. And Rabbi David Leibowitz became the first Rosh yeshiva, of a yeshiva called Torah Vadas, and in 1933 he started a new yeshiva in Williamsburg on East 9th Street, right? And East, South 9th Street. I apologize. I hope they don't revue, revoke my smitha. He, he started a yeshiva. And he named it after his great uncle. It's called Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim. That's where I went to my yeshiva. <laughs> rabbi David Leibowitz, the founder of my yeshiva, his son. He died untimely in 1941. His son of Hanach was my rabbi. He was my Raja Yeshiva. No. He died only a few years ago. I studied, all of us studied Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim, uh, founded by Rabbi David Leibowitz. I want to just end the hour late. With two quick stories, if I can, I apologize for going over. But two quick stories, you know, his legacy, or all of his books, the Mishneh Bura, the yeshiva that he founded, the Shmir, the Sefer Chavitz Chaim. He also left the legacy of the of of just him himself, his personality and his piety. And I just want to share two quick stories that are legendary. One of the most horrific stories is um, in World War I, when World War I broke out in 1914, so all German residents, expatriates, who were living in Russian soil immediately had to register with the local authorities. And in the Chavetz Chaim's yeshiva in Radin, there were three such students. And they chose not to register with the local authorities because registering as a German when you're in Russia probably meant you'd be sent off to jail, if not to Siberia. So there were three students, and they did not register. And the yeshiva in Radin for the next year, you know, Jewry in World War I was on the run. Everyone was dislocated. And people used to come through Radin all the time. And some of these were young students who wanted to join the yeshiva because they had been dislocated. The problem was it was very difficult to do background checks. Who was Everyone. You know, because these were unordinary times, it's the middle of a war, and people used just to filter in through the yeshiva, and it created a great challenge for the administration. Can you just accept everyone? On the one hand, it was a great chesed. It was these people were dislocated from the horrors of, of you know what was going on in World War One. But on the other hand, we don't really know who these people are. So it was a very difficult situation. They one fellow comes to the yeshiva in the summer of nineteen fifteen. He was claims to be a leather merchant from a nearby town. He enrolls in the yeshiva. In truth he was an informant. He was Jewish but an informant to the local authorities and he was looking to make a name for himself. And on Shiva Astra Batamuz, 17th month of Tamuz, which was last Thursday, interesting, a day of of um, a day of uh, Jewish tragedy, this supposed a leather merchant, slipped into one of these three German students. His name was Ephraim Leibowitz, of all things. It was Ephraim Leibowitz. He slips into his belongings the blueprints of a fortress in Kavna. And later that night, sure enough, what happens? The local authorities raid the yeshiva. And they heard that there's a spy in this yeshiva. And they go through this Ephraim Leibowitz's possessions. He's a German. First of all, why didn't he register? He was supposed to have broke the law. All Yeshiva broke the law. You have three students that didn't register with the authorities. And number two, they found the the blueprints. He's a traitor. He's going to be summarily shot in forty eight hours. And many of the of the of the administration Yeshiva were were jailed. With a lot of bribery and a lot of pray, prayer, they were able to get the administration and all those people released, and they didn't kill Ephraim Leibowitz immediately. They said they were going to actually put him on trial. But it's a capital offense. And they whisked him away farther east into Russia, into prison. In the summer of 1916, the time they hear, they get a report, that Ephraim Leibowitz is able to send out through a Jewish guard, That he's he's in prison over there, and his trial is going to be happening, um, you know, shortly. The Chavetz travels to Saint Petersburg, where he meets where he meets with an attorney whose name is Oscar Grusenberg, who, if you Google, actually has a Wikipedia Wikipedia page. He was the defense attorney, if you recall. Not for today. One of the most significant Jewish events of that era was the Bayliss trial, the Menachem Mendel Baylis trial. Significant a significant story in Jewish history, as well as he tried to get compensation for the Kishen of riots, which was, again, a significant part of Jewish history. But anyway, he was a Jewish attorney. And he tries to get him to defend Ephraim Leibowitz. This fellow, Grusenberg, decides the best tactic is to get a Christian defense attorney to represent this Ephraim Liebowitz. The story is one of the most legendary stories of the Chabot Chaim, the Christian This Christian attorney calls the Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Khamen Wasserman, and uh, Rabbi Levinson appear as character witnesses for this student, Leibowitz, who's on trial for his life. And they call the Chavetz Chaim to the stand. They said, do you swear under oath, under you know, perjury, do you swear under oath about what you're about to say? And he says, no, I've never taken an oath in my life. Chavetz Chaim said this, but I want you to know I've never told a lie in my entire life. That's pretty cool oh, they said, you don't need to swear. We'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave his, his uh, pleads. It says, this guy, he was framed. This, this wasn't what happened. Fine. Chavetz Chaim gives his testimony he leaves. This non-Jewish defense attorney says, your honor, I want to tell you who this person was. This Chavetz Chaim. Once upon a time, the Chavetz Chaim was walking down the street and someone asked him if he had change of a dollar or a ruble, or a kopek, or whatever it was that they had. And the Chavcham said, sure. And he pulled out his wallet. And the fellow who asked him for change snatched his wallet and ran. He was a pickpocket. Started running. time turns around and shouts at the thief, I want you to know, I hereby declare before everyone, my wallet is ownerless. Enjoy it, it's yours. Because he didn't want the thief to violate the prohibition of Losignov, thou shalt not steal. So you made it ownerless. It's yours. Keep it. I heard the story alternatively. I, I don't know if they're both true. One is true. It is a similar thing that the, the, the defense attorney says, I'll tell you who the Chafetz Chaim is. When he sends, every now and again, you want to send something, send a letter to the town next door, to, you know, a, a package. And you're about to stick it in the mail. And someone says, oh, I'm traveling there. I can deliver it to you. It'll be much faster and safer oh, okay, and he would give it, instead of wasting the you know, packet, the postage, what do you do? You give it to your friend. He says, when the Chavot Chaim used to do that, he used to take out a stamp and rip it up so as not to cause any loss to the government. <laughs> the judge turns to the attorney and says, do you expect me to believe those stories? Do you believe those stories? And one of the most famous stories, one of the greatest legends of the Chavot time, and I think it's a true story, the attorney says, I don't believe those stories. He says, Your Honor, there's a reason why they tell those stories about the Chavetz Chaim and not about you and me. <laughs> Years ago, I read, and if anyone wants to read this book, is uh, probably the authoritative biography of the Chavetz Chaim. It's, it's an amazing book. I certainly encourage it. You can get it online. There is a passage which they quoted here, but I've seen it quoted in other sources. It, uh, and we'll just we'll end with this, and I apologize, I'm late. I just want to end with the following excerpt. Kind of to end where we began at the great Kinesia Hagodola, the great gathering in Vienna in 1923. We talk about the piety and the greatness of the Chavetz Chaim. I'm an Orthodox rabbi. I went to the yeshiva named after the guy, so I'm biased, right? Let's read the description in 1923. From the Jewish Daily Forward... A radical socialist Jewish newspaper that hated religious Jews. They were there. This was a big deal, the Kinesia Agadol in Vienna. One of the author, one of the journalists is there, and this is what he wrote. There was a rabbi, the rabbi of Sokolov, is in the middle of his address, suddenly becomes silent. His hand remains outstretched in gesture as if frozen. The audience, the presidium, the journalists, the visitors, and the galleries rise up all at once. Distinguished rabbis, Devote and pious Jews, All get up from their places. A restrained soundless agitation begins. A murmur of reverence and awe. The strident outcries of several ushers are heard. Make room! Make room! A passageway is quickly cleared. People press in on one another. With bated breath, with a tremor in their hearts, They step back. Two rows of people form in the middle of the conference hall. Two rows of rabbinic delegates in elegant dress coats with long white beards. And between these two rows of rabbis, several other rabbis come leading in. No, not leading, they come carrying on their hands a small, feeble old man, aged and bent with a short white beard in a plain worn-out black coat with a black scarf round his neck. When you see this tiny 90-year-old man for the first time, it makes a singular impression on you. You feel a quiver of awe and love in your heart. A tremendous reverence and respect beyond any limit. When you take a closer look, you see the face of an angel, a ministering servant of God. The divine presence rests on that face, and you have to shut your eyes against the, radius, against the radiance streaming from those two small, gray, piercing eyes. When he stands on the dais speaking, two rabbis support him with their arms. The entire assembly stands as it listens to him. His voice is weak, but clear. He summons the Jews to unity, to peace, to goodness, to fear of heaven, to love a fellow man, to good deeds. His small figure trembles as he speaks. His white beard glistens from afar like a fresh fallen snow. He is not cynical. As viewed through his eyes, the entire world glows with potential wisdom and goodness. So I imagine Hillel the Elder, sage in the Talmud, must have looked. Leaving the hall, he passes between two columns of standing rabbis. He walks swiftly with alacrity, his, his head bowed low to the ground. When they lift him up to the place and place him in the automobile, the entire street is crowded with people. They press in on one another to get a glimpse of the Chafetz Chaim. Christians take off their hats out of respect. Jews climb on the car, on the wheels, on the motorhood. Everyone wants to see the Chafetz Chaim. Touch the hem of his poor, plain morning coat. Those who get very close push their trembling hands into the auto, and the Chavetz Chaim holds out his hand to give them welcome. With his pale, delicate fingers, he touches the coarse and trembling hands. Shalom, there's pandemonium. The police stand helpless. They cannot make order. They themselves push forward and look in wonder and awe at the sight of the singular aged short man with the velour hat on his head. The German newspapers in Vienna have so written many articles full of admiration about the Chavetz Chaim. Chavetz Chaim, the biography of the Chavetz Chaim, does not belong in the history section. The Chavetz Chaim's life, legacy, and biography belong in the section of Musser, of Jewish ethics, of what it means to be a great person, what it means to be a person who cares for others, what it means to be a humble person, a person of piety, a person who cares about how we speak about one another, a person who cares about halacha, about Jewish law. I want to thank you all for coming. Wish you all a great day. I'm here to stick around if anyone has any other questions. Please help yourself. Any other questions? What happened to the uh, student? Oh, oh, I missed the most important thing. Thank you. What happened to the student? The judges sentenced him to 10 years of hard labor. The students of the Chavitz Chaim were terrified. What, were, what was going to happen when they told that to the Chavitz Chaim? They thought it would break him. So they braced him for the impact. They said, you know, take a seat. And they said, you have to tell you. He got sentenced to 10 years of hard labor. You know what the Chavitz Chaim said? This was in the summer of, this was in, I'm sorry, December of 1916. The Chavitz Chaim said 10 years They sentenced him to 10 years. How do those authorities know they're going to be around in 10 years? They think they know that they're going to be around in 10 years? Do they even know they'll be around for 10 months? Maybe they won't even be around for 10 more weeks. Virtually 10 weeks later, the Romanov dynasty fell, and he was freed from prison. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.